0: this event was recorded live at the 2010 edinburgh international book festival uh,
1: we'll, we'll, we'll read and play for about a, uh, an hour uh, so that's carlan and, uh, uh, and john will uh, uh, more together um, can you ask you please to check that your um your mobiles are switched off uh, and can i ask you i've been asked to ask you not to tweet or, or, or chap, or indeed warble, if you're given to such things, until, until the lights go up at the end uh, and, the, and the reading's over. Um, I was looking at the programme, and I see him down as guest selector uh, for, for this reading, together with the uh, Scottish Poetry Library, in the shape of Robin Marsak and, and Peggy Hughes, and we've been uh, helping programme some of the events. Uh, uh in the in the festival but i have to say in this case it's a wee bit ridiculous uh to to be described as a selector um uh carlan was in no way selected um if ever there was a name on the uh, uh the list that was there before you started to compile the list uh, it was it was duffy's um this is down to um one simple fact, really, it's not because she's Poet Laureate, you know that, it's not because she's you know, the, the first woman Poet Laureate, or maybe more significantly, the first Scottish Poet Laureate. Um, it's not because Duffy's done more to uh, dissolve the fear and, and weariness about contemporary poetry as a trustworthy form of, of, of human speech in this country than just about anyone I can think of in the last 50 years. It's not because of her great uh, uh, generosity towards her fellow poets are and a great encouragement of, of new and old talent um, it, it's really simple duffy's almost the, you know the top of any list because of the poetry uh, the poetry that she's written and the poetry that she continues to write uh, she's achieved something I think a lot more poets would if they could which is a kind of poetry that's intelligible to everyone but written with no compromise and it's in its sophistication, in its complexity, and in, in its intelligence. And I think Caroline's uh, own definition of poetry as a form of, of uh, secular prayer sort of says it all for me, really. Our, our, our poems don't offer kind of easy comfort and they're trying to make sense of you know the senseless things that come up uh, in our lives. But what they do do is remind us that the things that are sacred are, are really already inside us, already part of our lives, and that's, and what poetry can do is give those things a, uh, a meaningful shape, a form of words uh, through which we can recognize them as communal experiences, a way of saying to each other that we're all in this together. In short, I think Carline writes the kind of poetry that confers in our lives some, some dignity, some sense, some grace, uh, uh, and, and some music. Um, and that's, I think, the best kind. This has got a really poor face. You can also be unbelievably funny to the point that I wet myself out, uh, at the readings. I should mention that too. You know all this, this is why you're here. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that she'll read some poems from her, 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 her new collection coming out next year called The Bees. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, can you give a very warm Edinburgh welcome to John Sanson and Carl Duffy.
0: Thank you very much for your kind words, Don, And there. Here's a wee tune for us all to warm up with. The fairy dance. Feel free to clap along or dance along or whatever. Here we go. This is my favourite one, because um, my mother liked this one. uh, I understandably play it for her, The Dark Island. So if you know the words, sing along. And if you don't know the words, sing along. This melody is very short, it's called Schizophrenia, (laughs) and I wrote it myself, I think. to play a couple more but I wanted to show you my baby one. That's how small it is. This is called the Garkline Floater. It doesn't actually have a translation into English but in Scots I tend to call it a daft wee whistle. <laughs> and then this, is, um, this is one that you'll all know over the sea to sky. So I hear you singing along to this. Get my rather large paws around it. Here we go. And... <laughs> Indeed, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, thank you, and I it gives me a great pleasure and privilege to introduce you to the Point Laureate Caroline Duffy. Thank
2: you. <laughs> thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here at the best book festival in the world and, um, and to share this event with um, John who was given to me by the Queen
3: <laughs>
2: still waiting for the sherry <laughs> and, uh, and of course to be introduced by Don by Patterson um, wonderful poet and, and editor at Picador who published me So I thought in my first little section, I'd read some old poems from The World's Wife. And um, I loved, when I wrote the the poems in The World's Wife, looking at the stories that I'd grown up with that had fed my imagination, educated me, made me, in a sense, the kind of of writer I was to become. It was never my intention um, to to do some kind of subversive anti-male. Um, book, more to celebrate story. And um, the very first of these poems that I wrote looked um, at Ovid and his story of King Midas. And I'd been enthralled by this as a child when Midas was granted his wish by the gods and asked that everything he touched would turn to gold. But older... I felt queasy when I remembered this story, perhaps at the idea of being his lover shortly after the wish had been granted. So here is Mrs. Midas. (laughs) She's a very good cook. She's in her kitchen, everything's going well. Pours a slug of cooking wine and then happens to glance out through her kitchen window into the garden where she sees her husband Midas. Up to no good. It was late September. I'd just poured a glass of wine, begun to unwind while the vegetables cooked. The kitchen filled with the smell of itself, relaxed, its steamy breath gently blanching the windows. So I opened one, then with my fingers wiped the other's glass like a brow. He was standing under the pear tree, snapping a twig. Now, the garden was long and the visibility poor. The way the dark of the ground seems to drink the light of the sky. But that twig in his hand was gold. And then he plucked a pear from a branch. We grew fondant d'autom. And it sat in his palm like a light bulb. On. I thought to myself, is he putting fairy lights in that tree? <laughs> he came into the house. The doorknobs gleamed. He drew the blinds. You know the mind. I thought of the field of the cloth of gold and of Miss Macready. He sat in that chair like a king on a burnished throne. The look on his face was strange, wild, vain. I said, what in the name of God is going on? He started to laugh. I served up the meal. For starters, corn on the cob. Within seconds he was spitting out the teeth of the rich. He toyed with his spoon, then mine, then with the knives, the forks. He asked where was the wine. I poured with a shaking hand a fragrant bone-dry white from Italy, then watched as he picked up the glass goblet golden chalice, drank. It was then that I started to scream. He sank to his knees. After we'd both calmed down, I finished the wine on my own, hearing him out. I made him sit on the other side of the room and keep his hands to himself. I locked the cat in the cellar. I moved the phone. The toilet I didn't mind. (laughs) I couldn't believe my ears, how he'd had a wish. Look, we all have wishes. Granted. But who has wishes granted? Him. Do you know about gold? It feeds no one. Aurum, soft, untarnishable, slakes, no thirst. He tried to light a cigarette. I gazed, entranced, as the blue flame played on its luteous stem. At least, I said, you'll be able to give up smoking for good. Separate beds. In fact, I put a chair against my door, near petrified. He was below, turning the spare room into the tomb of Tutankhamun. You see? We were passionate then, in those halcyon days, unwrapping each other rapidly like presents, fast food. But now I feared his honeyed embrace, the kiss that would turn my lips to a work of art. And who, when it comes to the crunch, can live with a heart of gold that night? I dreamt I bore his child, its perfect all limbs, its little tongue like a precious latch, its amber eyes holding their pupils like flies. My dream milk burned in my breasts, I woke to the streaming sun. So he had to move out, We'd a caravan in the wilds in a glade of its own. I drove him up under cover of dark. He sat in the back. And then I came home, the woman who married the fool who wished for gold. At first, I visited odd times, parking the car a good way off, then walking. You knew you were getting close. Golden trout on the grass. One day, a hare hung from a larch, a beautiful lemon mistake, and then his footprints glistening next to the river's path. He was thin, delirious, hearing, he said, the music of Pan from the woods. Listen, that was the last straw. What gets me now is not the idiocy or greed, but lack of thought for me pure selfishness. I sold the contents of the house and came down here. I think of him in certain nights, dawn, late afternoon, and once a bowl of apples stopped me dead. I miss most, even now, his hand, his warm hands on my skin his touch. Thank you. Last well-known character from Ovid is Tiresias. Um, I actually first came across Tiresias in Elliot's great poem, The Wasteland, um, and being Scottish, but being educated in England, that wonderful line in Eliot, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled female dugs. I read, as a teenager, as, as Tiresias had, like, two pets. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when I went to my teacher, who was wonderful, she explained that and then said, but you must go back to the original story in Ovid. And the bit I'm concentrating on in the poem um, is the part when Tiresias, who would have been a middle-aged man, went out for um, a walk in the woods, and on his walk he encountered two snakes attempting to couple. And he didn't like the look of this at all, so he prevented it by beating the snakes to a pulp with his walking stick, as you would. And of course the Greek gods were always looking down on mortal activity and they were very angry with Tiresias for doing the the snakes, and they punished him then and there by turning him into a woman for seven years. (laughs) After which point he he could um, become a man again. And I read this poem, um, as I'm going to do later, just in manuscript form before um, I published it, I think in Preston as a poetry reading, and I was accosted by an academic at the end of the reading. And she said, I didn't know, didn't I, that Tiresias had done many other things in his myth. And my poem barely glanced on on any of this. It was quite an ignorant poem, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So when the time came to publish, as you'll see if you buy the book afterwards, it's published as from, in italics, Mrs. Tiresias. (laughs) as though to suggest that my poem is but an extract from a longer, more knowledgeable poem. (laughs) Which it ain't. (laughs) Mrs. Tiresias from All I Know Is This. He went out for his walk a man and came home female. Out the back gate with his stick, the dog, wearing his gardening kecks, an open-neck shirt, and a jacket in Harry's tweed I'd patched at the elbows myself, whistling. He liked to hear the first cuckoo of spring, then write to the Times. I'd usually heard it days before him, but I never let on. I'd heard one that morning while he was asleep, just as I heard at about 6 p.m., a faint sneer of thunder up in the woods and felt a sudden heat at the back of my knees. He was late getting back. I was brushing my hair at the mirror and running a bath when a face swam into view next to my own. The eyes were the same, but in the shocking V of the shirt were breasts. When he uttered my name in his woman's voice, I passed out. (laughs) Life has to go on. I put it about that he was a twin, and this was his sister come down to live while he himself was working abroad. And at first I tried to be kind, blow-drying his hair till he learnt to do it himself. Lending him clothes till he started to shop for his own sisterly, holding his soft, new shape in my arms all night. Then he started his period. (laughs) (laughs) One week in bed. Two doctors in. Three painkillers four times a day. And later, a letter to the powers that be demanding full paid menstrual leave 12 weeks per year. I see him still, his selfish, pale face peering at the moon through the bathroom window. The curse, he said. The curse Don't kiss me in public, he snapped the next day. I don't want folk getting the wrong idea. It got worse. After the split, I would glimpse him out and about, entering glitzy restaurants on the arms of powerful men, though I knew for sure there'd be nothing of that going on if he had his way or on TV, telling the women out there how, as a woman himself, he knew how we felt. His flirt's smile. The one thing he never got right was the voice, a cling peach slithering out from its tin. I gritted my teeth. And this is my lover, I said, the one time we met at a glittering ball under the lights, among tinkling glass, and watched the way he stared at her violet eyes, at the blaze of her skin, at the slow caress of her hand on the back of my neck, and saw him picture her bite, her bite at the fruit of my lips, and hear my red, wet cry in the night as she shook his hand, saying, How do you do? And I noticed then his hands, her hands, the clash of their sparkling rings and their painted nails. It's a very tiny, tiny poem that I stole from the diary of Mrs. Darwin. Um, And I know that in Edinburgh you will understand this poem completely. 7th of April, 1852, went to the zoo. I said to him, something about that chimpanzee over there reminds me of you. True. And I'll read one more quite long poem for my first set. And this is probably my favorite of all the old stories the story of Faust. And you remember that Faust sold his soul to Mephistopheles, to the devil, in exchange for. 24 years, it was, of unimaginable wealth and power. He could have anything in this deal. He could time travel, do magic. Nothing was denied him. But at the end, he did have to pay up. And here is Mrs. Faust, who is a deeply unpleasant woman, very materialistic. And she met Faust when they were students at university together. And after an on-off, up-down relationship, um, they married. I actually know the university that they met (laughs) at, which was, of course, St.
3: Andrews.
2: (laughs) So here is her version of Faust's pact, Mrs. Faust. First things first, I married Faust. We met a student, shacked up, split up, made up, hitched up. Got a mortgage on a house, flourished academically, BA, MA, PhD, no kids. Two towed bathrobes, hers, his. We worked, we saved, we moved again, fast cars, a boat with sails. A second home in Wales, the latest toys, computers, smartphones, prospered, moved again. Faust's face was clever, greedy slightly mad I was as bad I grew to love the lifestyle not the life he grew to love the kudos not the wife he went to whores I felt not jealousy but chronic irritation. I went to yoga, tai chi, feng shui, therapy, colonic irrigation. (laughs) And Faust would boast at dinner parties of the cost of doing deals out east, then take his lust to Soho in a cab, to say the least, to lay the ghost, get lost, meet panthers, feast. He wanted more. I came home late one winter's evening, hadn't eaten. Faust was upstairs in his study, in a meeting. I smelt cigar smoke, hellish, oddly sexy, not allowed. I heard Faust and the other laugh aloud. Next thing, the world, as Faust said, spread its legs. First politics, safe seat, MP, right hon, KG. Then banks, offshore, abroad. And business, vice chairman, chairman, owner, lord. Enough, encore. Faust was cardinal, pope. Knew more than God, flew faster than the speed of sound around the globe. Lunched, walked on the moon. Golfed, holding one, lit a fat Havana on the sun. Then, back to hunch, invested in smart bombs, in harms. Fast dealt in arms, fast got in deep, got out, bought farms, cloned sheep, fast surfed the internet for like-minded bo peep. As for me, I went my own sweet way. Saw Rome in a day, spun gold from hay, had a facelift, had my breasts enlarged, my buttocks tightened, went to China, Thailand, Africa, returned, enlightened, turned 40, celibate, teetotal, vegan, Buddhist, 41, went blonde, redhead, brunette, went native, ate berserk, bananas, went on the run, alone, went home. Fast was in A word, he said. "I spent the night being pleasured by a virtual Helen of Troy, faced that launched a thousand ships, I kissed its lips. Thing is, I've made a pact with Mephistopheles, the devil's boy. He's on his way to take away what's owed, reap what I sowed. For all these years of gagging for it, going for it, rolling in it, I've sold my soul. At this. I heard a serpent's hiss. Tasted evil, knew its smell. The scaly devil hands poked up right through the terracotta Tuscan tiles at Faust's bare feet and dragged him, oddly smirking, there and then straight down to hell. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Faust well left everything, the yacht, the several homes, the Learjack, the helipad, the loot, etc, etc, the lot, to me, c'est la vie. When I got ill, it hurt like hell. I bought a kidney with my credit card, then I got well. I keep Faust's secret still. The clever, cunning, callous bastard didn't have a soul to sell. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Now, well, I just wanted to show you my crumb horn, uh, for obvious reasons. <laughs> it's sort of a it's, a, it's quite an old instrument. And here's a tune from the 16th century now is the month of May. Sounds a bit like this. <laughs> And right. um, I wanted to show you my new instrument. This is my new instrument. And where do you think this comes from? The, garble? the garbles? The gobble's <laughs> no, no, no further east than that. It comes from, sorry, did someone say China? I thought I heard you say that. So China, yeah. This is called the halusi, for those of you who don't know. halu means gourd and sea means silk. So it's an instrument of the silken gourd. And interestingly enough, it's got three bits of bamboo, but only two are functional. I wondered about that, so I looked up the internet, and I'm thinking it might be some earth-shattering reason. But in fact, it's because it's more aesthetically pleasing to have three. Oh, I quite like that. <laughs> Here we go. for you. you. Now this is a Shalmai pipe or a shepherd's pipe and uh, it's from the time of Henry VIII who of course as you know was a serial killer <laughs> but he, he also found time he also found time to write some music as well and this is one of his tunes allegedly called Pastime of Good Company. Take you back to the 16th century. I didn't tell Carol about this, but we had a very, we've got a very special guest here this evening, indeed. And it is, of course, Mozart.
2: That's uncanny. Yes.
0: It's good to be back. <laughs> I see nothing much has changed. So I wanted to play one of my greatest works. I had a kind of act music, a little night music, But normally we'd have the orchestra here today, but since I've just arrived, I'll just do it myself. Thank you, you've come to every day.
3: <laughs>
0: so I'd like to finish this little spot now with a piece called "Planksty Irwin. And uh, this was written by um, one of the great of the last blind harpers. And um, uh, Plankstey certainly means tune in Irish, those of you who don't know, and Irwin's what it's about. So I'll finish with a touch of the Irish way. Right?
2: I'd read some new poems now which um, I haven't put in a book yet some of them you might have um, heard here and there and um, I think I'm ordering this book with um, the first poem I'll I'll read now and the poem I'll end with Um, and these are both poems which kind of go backwards in time and um, this first poem is called Last Post and um, I open it with a couple of lines from um, Wolferdine. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If poetry could tell it backwards, true, begin that moment shrapnel scythe you to the stinking mud. But you get up, amazed, watch bled, bad blood, run upwards from the slime into its wounds. See lines and lines of British boys rewind back to their trenches, kiss the photographs from home. Mothers, sweethearts, sisters, younger brothers not entering the story now to die and die and die. Dulce, no. Decorum, no. Pro patria mori, you walk away. You walk away, drop your gun, fixed bayonet, like all your mates do too, Harry, Tommy, Wilfred, Edward, Bert, and light a cigarette. There's coffee in the square, warm French bread, and all those thousands dead are shaking dried mud from their hair and queuing up for home. Freshly alive, a lad prays tipperary to the crowd, released from history, the glistening healthy horses fit for heroes, kings. You lean against a wall, your several million lives still possible, and crammed with love, work, children, talent, English beer, Good food. You see the poet tuck away his pocketbook and smile. If poetry could truly write it backwards, then it would. And of course, i um, My um, interest in writing that poem was not so much to look at the past, but very much um, to the present and the wars that we're currently occupied in. Um, And this next poem is looking at the Iraq inquiry. Um, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I can scarcely bear these days to look at a photograph of, of Tony Blair with his rich grin It's a poem called Big Ask. What was it Sisyphus pushed up the hill? I wouldn't call it a rock. Will you solemnly swear on the Bible? I couldn't swear on a book. With which piece did you capture the castle? I shouldn't hazard a rook. When did the president give you the date? Nothing to do with Barack. Were 1,200 targets marked on a chart? Nothing was circled in black. On what was the prisoner stripped and stretched? Nothing resembling a rack. Guantanamo Bay. How many detained? How many grains in a sack? Extraordinary rendition. Give me some names. How many cards in a pack? Sex in the dossier? Name of the game? Poker. Gin rummy. Blackjack. What's your understanding of shock and... Or, I didn't plan the attack. Once inside the mosque, describe what you saw. I couldn't see through the smoke. Your estimate of the cost of the war? I had no brief to keep track. Where was Saddam when they found him at last? Maybe hold under a shack. What happened to him once they'd kicked his ass? Maybe he swung from the neck. The WMD, you found the stash? Well... Maybe not in Iraq. Dan, talking to uh, Don before the reading, and it's very interesting as a poet how. It takes maybe some years before you notice what, what you're writing about. And I've recently noticed that in my poems, unsummoned bees um, were present, sometimes as an image in a poem, um, and then a little as, as the subject. So this is a very um, free response, not an adaptation even, or a translation, to um, part of Virgil's long poem about the civilization of bees and how to keep bees and because my inspiration came from from him I've called it Virgil's Bees. Bless air's gift of sweetness, honey from the bees inspired by clover, marigold, eucalyptus, thyme, the hundred perfumes of the wind. Bless the bee-keeper, who chooses for her hives a sight near water, violet beds, no you, no echo. Let the light lilt, leak, green or gold, pigment for queens, and joy be inexplicable, but there, in harmony of willow herb and stream, of summer heat and breeze, each Bee's body at its brilliant flower, lover stand, strumming on fragrance, smitten. For this, let gardens grow where bee lines end, sighing in roses, saffron blooms, budlier, where bees pray on their knees, sing, praise in pear trees, plum trees. Bees are the batteries of orchards, gardens, guard them. I think these new poems seem to be about vanishings, um, and I trace that personally back to my mother's death um, five years ago now, although those of you who who will have had such a bereavement will know that it it can only seem like five months rather than five years Um, and I didn't write for three years any adult poems after her death, I was kind of deafened by it, I was able to what I think of as paddle in children's poetry but I wasn't able to go further into the sea and swim and here is a poem which celebrates um, something that she loved as much as I do, which is the names of British pubs. Um, and I hate when new pubs um, suddenly appear with, with meaningless names. What I love is how the names of our pubs celebrate the local, um, a person, an occupation, an animal, a bird, a piece of history, a local connection. Um, and I've taken my title from, from Burns, Um, My poem is called John Barleycorn, and although in his poem Burns was celebrating the drink, in my poem I'm celebrating the names of pubs, and my John Barleycorn is a kind of green man that I run after through the names of all these pubs. So I do hope that you find your own pubs named in the poem. I'm ashamed to say that I wrote this poem, I didn't once have to look up any names, they just (laughs) flow John Barleycorn. Although I knew they'd laid him low, thrashed him, hung him out to dry, had tortured him with water and with fire, then dashed his brains out on a stone, I saw him in the seven stars and in the plough. I saw him in the crescent moon and in the beehive and the barley mow, my green man, newly born, alive, John Barleycorn. I saw him seasonally, at harvest time, in the wheat sheaf and the load of hay. I saw him, heard his laughter, in the star and garter, in the fountain, in the bell, the corn dolly, the woolpack, and the flowing spring. I saw him in the rising sun, the moon and sixpence and the evening star. I saw him in the rose and crown, my green man, ancient, barely born, John Barleycorn. He moved through Britain, bright and dark, like ale in glass I saw him run across the fields towards the gamekeeper, the poacher and the blacksmith's arms he knew the ram, the lamb the lion and the swan white heart, blue boar red dragon, fox and hounds I saw him in the three goats' heads the black bull and dun cow shoulder of mutton griffin, unicorn green man, beer born good health, long life john barleycorn I saw him festively when people sang for victory or love or New Year's Eve in the raven and the bird in hand, the golden eagle, the kingfisher, the dove. I saw him grieve or mourn, a shadow at the bar in the falcon the marsh harrier, the sparrow hawk, the barn owl, cuckoo, nightingale, a pint of bitter in the jenny wren for my green man, alone, forlorn, John Barlicorn. Britain's soul, as the crow flies, so flew he. I saw him in the holly bush, the yew tree, the royal oak, the ivy bush, the linden. I saw him in the forester, the woodman. He, history. I saw him in the Wellington, the Nelson, Marquis of Granby, wicked lady, Bishop's finger. I saw him in the ship, the golden fleece, the flask, the railway Inn, the Robin Hood and Little John, my green man, legend, strong, reborn, John Barleycorn. Scythed down, he crawled, knelt, stood. I saw him in the crow. Newt, stag, all weathers, noon or night. I saw him in the feathers, salutation, navigation, knots. The bricklayer's arms hop in, the maypole, the regiment, the horse and groom, the dog and duck, the flag. And where he supped, the past lived still. And where he sipped, the glass brimmed full. He was in the king's head and queen's arms, I saw him there, green man, well-born, spellbound, charming one, John Barleycorn. (laughs) Cold. It felt so cold the snowball which wept in my hand. And when I rolled it along in the snow, it grew till I could sit on it, looking back at the house, where it was cold when I work in my rooms, the windows blind with ice, my breath undressing itself on the air. Cold, too, embracing the torso of snow, which I lifted up in my arms to build a snowman, my toes burning cold in my winter boots, my mother's voice calling me in from the cold. And her hands were cold from peeling, then dipping potatoes into a bowl, stopping to cup her daughter's face, a kiss for both cold cheeks, my cold nose, But nothing so cold as the February night, I opened the door in the chapel of rest, where my mother lay, neither young nor old, where my lips, returning her kiss to her brow, knew the meaning of cold. And this is a very new poem written to um, single-handedly prevent the post office from removing the names of our counties when we write letters. And it's just called The Counties. But I want to write to an Essex girl greeting her warmly. But I want to write to a Shropshire lad, brave boy, home from the army. And I want to write to the Lincolnshire poacher, to hear of his hair. And to an auntie in Bedfordshire, who makes a wooden hill of her stair. But I want to post a rose to a Lancashire lass, red, I'll pick it. And I want to write to a Middlesex mate, for tickets, for cricket. And I want to write to the Ayrshire cheesemaker, and his good cow and it is my duty to write to the Queen at Berkshire in praise of Slough. (laughs) But I want to write to the National Poet of Wales at Ceredigion in celebration, and I want to write to the Dorset Giant in admiration, and I want to write to a widow in Rutland in commiseration, and to the Inland Revenue in Yorkshire in desperation. But I want to write to my uncle in Clackmannanshire in his kilt, and to my scrumptious cousin in Somerset with her cidery lilt. But I want to write to two ladies in Denbyshire near Langochlan, and I want to write to a laddie in Lanarkshire, dear Loughlin. But I want to write to the Cheshire Cat returning its smile. But I want to write the names of the counties down for my own child, and may they never be lost to her all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. Like most poets, I vehemently disagree with Philip Larkin on almost everything. Um, (laughs) And um, I do love myth, what he called the myth kitty. So this is Atlas, and it occurred to me that Atlas is um, a very pertinent symbol to our time. And um, I read this poem in the hope that we can all donate a lot more than we have been to um, the people of Pakistan. And um, it's a kind of prayer for the earth, having the image of Atlas holding up the globe. Atlas. Give him strength, crouched on one knee in the dark with the earth on his back, balancing the seven seas, the oceans, five, kneeling in ruthless, empty, endless space, for grace of whale, dolphin, sea lion, shark, seal, fish, every kind which swarms the waters, hero. Hard too, heavy to hold, the mountains burn of his neck and arms taking the strain, Andes, Himalayas, Kilimanjaro give him strength, he heaves them high, to harvest rain from skies for streams and rivers. He holds the rivers, holds the Amazon, Ganges, Nile, hero, hero. Hired by no one, heard in a myth, only, lonely. He carries a planet's weight, islands and continents, the billions there. His ears, the last to hear their language, music, gunfire prayer, give him strength, strong girth, for elephants, tigers, snow leopards, polar bears, bees, bats, the last ounce of a hummingbird, broad bat in infinite bleak black, he bears where earth is, nowhere, head bowed. A genuflection to the shoulder, dead, the unborn's hero. He is love's lift. Sometimes the moon rolled to his feet. A gift. Water. Your last word was water, which I poured in a hospice plastic cup, held to your lips, your small sip, half smile, sigh. Then, in the chair beside you, fell asleep. Fell asleep for three lost hours, only to waken, thirsty, hear, then see, a magpie worn, in a bush outside dawn so soon and swallow from your still full cup water the times I'd called as a child for a drink till you'd come sit on the edge of the bed in the dark holding my hand just as we held hands now and you died a good last word Night since I've cried, but gone to my own child's side with a drink. Watched her gulp it down, then sleep. Water, what a mother brings through darkness still to her parched daughter. This next poem I wrote when the um, volcano had grounded all our airplanes and I live very near Manchester Airport. And I was at home most of that week and became aware that I was hearing more deeply into the neighbourhood. I wasn't only hearing my own garden but all the other gardens. And this was something I hadn't really heard in that way since I was a child so this poem is called Silver Lining Five miles up the hush and shush of ash yet the sky is as clean as a wiped slate I could write my childhood there Selfish to sit in this garden listening to the past a Tudor bee wooing its flower a lawnmower when grounded plains mean ruined plans, holidays on hold. Sore absences from weddings, funerals, wingless commerce. But Britain's birds sing in this spring, from Inverness to Liverpool, from Creef to Cardiff, Cambridge, London town, Land's End to John Groats. The music, silence, summons. Shakespeare heard John Clare briefly, us. Thank you. It's quite quite funny because I'm reading these poems, kind of not really finished, as you'll see. Um, That last line should have included Burns, but I missed it out. Shakespeare, Burns, Dunclair. And my penultimate poem um, returns to the bee. And there's a awful thing called colony collapse disorder which is affecting bees, as you know, globally. Um, and the, one morning the hive will simply be empty. And there doesn't seem to be a consensus as to why this might be happening. It could be pesticides or the export and importing of bees or mobile phone signals, but it's very, very serious, particularly in America and parts of China, not so bad yet here. And I read to my horror that in some parts of China the bees have gone and people are having to pollinate their fruit trees by hand, and if they don't do this, their orchards will yield no fruit. So this poem is called The Human Bee. I became a human bee at twelve when they gave me my small wand, my flask of pollen, and I walked with the other bees out to the orchards. I worked first in apples, climbed the ladder into the childless arms of a tree and busied myself, dipping and tickling duping and tackling, tracing the petals' guidelines down to the stigma. Human, humming, I knew my lessons by heart. The ovary would become the fruit, the ovule, the seed, fertilised by my golden touch, my Midas dust. I moved to pears, head and shoulders lost in blossom, dawn till dusk, my delicate, Blessing. All must be docile, kind, unfraught for one fruit. Pomegranate, peach, nectarine, plum, the rhymeless orange. And if an opening bud was out of range, I'd jump from my ladder onto a branch and reach. So that was my working life as a bee, till my eyesight blurred. My hand was a trembling bud in the leaves, the bones of my fingers thinner than ones. And when they retired me, I had my wine from the silent vines. And I'd known love, and I'd saved some money. But I could not fly, and I made no honey. you so much and John and I thought we would do my last poem together Um, and this is the the third poem I'll read this evening for my mother Um, in the poem I imagine that the very first time I meet her is at the moment of her death when I I was with her and then as I did in the the last post poem we we go back together um, in time so it's a kind of um, resurrection in language and um, I was very grateful um, to have written this poem and um, after an image of some flowers in the poem which you'll hear I I call it premonitions we first met when your last breath cooled in my palm like an egg you dead and a thrush outside sang it was morning I backed out of the room, feeling the flowers freshen and shine in my arms. The night before, we met again, to unsay unbearable farewells, to see our eyes brighten with re-strung tears. Oh, I had my sudden wish, though I barely knew you, to stand at the door of your house, feeling my heartbeat calm as they carried you in home, home and healing. Then slow weeks, removing the wheelchair, the drugs, the oxygen mask and tank, the commode, the appointment cards, until it was summer again and I saw you open the doors to the gift of your garden. Strange, and beautiful to see the roses close to their own premonitions. The grass sweeten and cool and green where a blackbird eased a worm into the lawn. There you were, a glass of lemony wine in each hand, walking towards me always, your magnolia tree, marrying itself to the May air. How you talked, and how I listened, spellbound, humbled, daughterly, to your tall tales, your wise words. The joy of your accent, un-English, dancy, humorous. Watching your ash hair flare and redden. The loving listening of who we had been, making me place my hands in your warm hands. Younger than mine are now Than time Only the moon And the balm of dusk And you My mother
1: Just to tell you very quickly that uh, if you want to take uh, John Sampson's devastating lips home with you, his new CD, Skull and Kink, is also on sale in the signing tent where both Catlin and him are now headed. So, thanks for coming.
0: Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at
3: www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.